You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Don't struggle to align your organization's cybersecurity with business risk. Get the only solution that goes beyond reacting to threats with vulnerability and risk monitoring. You need the next evolution of MDR, and only Critical Start delivers it. Critical Start doesn't just monitor and respond to threats. They put you in control by detecting suspicious activities, quickly responding to contained threats, and identifying your most critical assets and protecting them against vulnerabilities and exposures. With continuous visibility, expert guidance, and measurable risk reduction, Critical Start has redefined what it means to manage cyber risk. Demonstrate provable security maturity to your leadership while positioning your program to achieve the greatest risk reduction per dollar spent. Stop fearing risk and start managing it with Critical Start. Visit criticalstart.com and request a demo today. That's criticalstart.com. A look back at Black Hat and DEF CON with notes on technology and public policy. Participants urge people to contribute their expertise to policymakers. Power failures in the UK at the end of last week are largely resolved, and authorities say they've ruled out cyber attack as a possible cause. Russia puts Google on notice that it had better moderate YouTube content to put an end to what Moscow considers incitement to unrest. And China says reports of criminal activity are bunkum. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Monday, August 12, 2019. Black Hat and DEF CON have concluded, and the attendees have now left the Nevada desert and returned to wherever they came from. We heard speakers in several sessions at DEF CON urge that those professionally involved with cybersecurity also involve themselves with legislators, that they attend congressional hearings, send direct messages to the representatives, and so on. Some of this was civics class, good government advice, some advocacy, and some a call to contribute from the distinctive perspective security expertise might lend a citizen. There were signs of mutual interest, several members of Congress attended, which speaks to some recognition of the security community's importance and of interest in the conversations taking place last week in Nevada. Phil Stupak, an organizer of AI Village and a fellow at the Cyber Policy Initiative at the University of Chicago, told CNN, quote, We are trying to break down the barriers between the people in tech who know what they're doing and the people in Congress who know how to take that knowledge to make laws, end quote. There were comparable signs of such interest at Black Hat. Bruce Schneier delivered an address in which he called for technologists to contribute their expertise to the public process. InfoSecurity magazine quoted him as saying, No policymakers understand technology. Technologists are in one world, and policymakers are in a different world. It's no longer acceptable for them to be in separate worlds, though, as technology and policy are deeply intertwined. Quote. Your influence as a consumer, he argued, is negligible, but your influence as a technologist can be considerable, and that influence can also be wielded within the companies technologists work for. There was some commendable self-awareness and appreciation of complexity on display. A proposal for widespread online voting, for example, 
received a cool reception because the audience of technologists perceived how hard it would be to pull that off. And on right-to-repair laws, a hot-button issue to many, one salient point made to the hacker crowd was that corporations are not necessarily malicious in their intent and that they are often good people making decisions answerable to a different set of criteria from those a consumer or hacker might use. Others noted that decisions about the right to repair are largely made in first-world settings that have moved towards a more disposable economy. The same rules might not necessarily apply to emerging economies, where equipment has a much longer life cycle, and repair and reuse are not only common, but necessary. Ralph Russo is Director of Information Technology Programs for Tulane University's School of Professional Advancement. Educational institutions like Tulane are tasked with preparing their students for the rapidly evolving demands of employers in technical fields like IT and cybersecurity. It's a challenge they're equipped to take on, but it is indeed a challenge. The word I would use would be transitional. Uh, Just Mm. like the rest of society, we're going from a a pretty well-articulated process. You you go to college, you get your education, you move on to a job, generally speaking. However, things are changing. We need to change, speaking from an academic perspective, we need to change with it. So what that is, the the traditional get your education, then move into industry, maybe get a certification or two, get some experience. I think that's being upended and disrupted. Going forward, uh, folks will need to be lifelong learners. They'll, they'll need to be more live, need to be more adaptive. And universities, therefore, will need to position themselves to provide that kind of education. And how do you see that transition taking place on the ground there at Tulane? Well, we've taken multiple steps towards ensuring that we're, well, we're turning out students that are well aligned to what industry needs. Some of the things we've done, uh, well, to take a step back, we think, or at least I think, that students leaving our programs need to have three distinct areas that they're, that they're adept in. One is the traditional academic areas, knowing the concepts very well. And that's very important because as things change, if you understand fundamentally how things are built, how things, the history of things, then you could survive that change as opposed to the second item in my list, which would be experience. If you, if you, and the third item would be certification. Certifications are done to teach you a specific concept or a specific technical or technology at a specific time, which are great. I think they're important for students but they do not replace academic, nor does academic fulfill the entire need. And the third is experiential. In in technology, employers, which I've done many interviews and hired many folks myself, employers want some level of hands-on experience. So universities need to go beyond the academic and teach things that are more hands-on, provide more experiential opportunity for students, and also perhaps provide an inroad to getting certification for students. I hear a lot of stories from folks who are out there trying to get jobs that they're frustrated because many of the employers are saying, we've got a ton of openings available here, but those openings, they're looking for folks with a lot more experience than you'd come out of college with. Yeah. And and I've seen the same thing and I hear the same thing. I maintain many relationships throughout industry. In fact, in rebuilding my and building my programs, including a new cybersecurity management master's, uh, what I did was 
I went out to industry. I brought 30 or so CEOs, CIOs, and CISOs into a room and said, what are you getting versus what you need? And I heard some things very clearly, and some of them surprised me. I knew that they'd want more hands-on technical, so we responded by adding two, more than 200 labs to my program so that hmm. students were, were able to go, quote-unquote, hands-on around each piece of academic learning. The second thing I heard uh, very much was that students were coming out, and one of the problems was they didn't understand governance for example, uh, governance and, and, and interacting with teams and leadership, that kind of uh, workplace wrapper that's needed. So we've, we've leaned in on governance and teaching uh, best practice, alignment, training, risk management. And then lastly, what I heard and, and very strongly from business was that technology students were coming out and they didn't have a grasp of how technology drives the business. Uh, they knew, they thought technology was, to, according to the folks we interviewed as, as part of building our programs, they thought technology was about technology. When really, in most businesses and most government technology operations, your job is to drive the business. There was a lack of understanding of how to communicate around the business of technology. There was a lack of ability to talk to uh, to people who weren't in the technical end of the business, for, exa for example, people in the C-suite. So we made sure that our programs are, are all teaching those skills and we're doing it in a very practical way. That's Ralph Russo from Tulane University. Turning to other events, the UK sustained a power failure Friday that left about a million users in England and Wales without electricity. The Independent reports that two power stations, one wind-driven, the other gas-fired, went offline almost simultaneously, after which automatic safety features caused outages to protect the grid as a whole. Some had jumped to the conclusion that the outages were the result of a cyber attack, but according to the Washington Post, this was quickly ruled out. Power was largely restored Friday evening, but railroads felt the effects linger into Saturday. It was not a case of graceful degradation. Some essential medical and transportation systems were disrupted. Authorities tell the BBC they're determined to learn lessons. It is striking how quickly early speculation about power outages turned to the possibility of cyber attack. It's also striking how quickly the authorities were able to rule out an attack, especially given the extent to which an attack could be masked as an accident. It will be interesting to learn more about what the investigation ultimately determines about the cause of the incident. For now, the criticism in the British press has centered largely on what the editorialists are complaining about the ramshackle quality of the UK's grid. Deutsche Welle reports that Russia's internet regulatory body, Roskomnadzor, warned Google not to permit YouTube to incite opposition protests. On Saturday, between 20,000 and nearly 50,000 demonstrators took to the streets in Moscow over allegations of municipal election fraud, according to The Guardian. The lower figure comes from police, the higher from independent estimates. Municipal election fraud seems to have engaged the Russian opposition more than it would in many other countries. The recent incidents of unrest came in response to the exclusion of a number of opposition candidates from the ballots. Protests of various sizes have taken place over the past few weeks, and they've generally met with a stiff response from riot police. YouTube users in Russia did share a number of protest videos. 
Russian authorities profess to see this as interference with democratic processes. Roskomnadzor complained to Google about structures using tools like push notifications to spread information about the mass protests. The protest would seem to be illegal under Russian law, and the structures, a term not further explained, would appear to refer to some organized and arguably coordinated set of political actors. A failure on the part of Google to take action would be regarded as quote, interference in Russia's sovereign affairs and hostile influence and obstruction of democratic elections in Russia. Quote. Moscow says it would respond appropriately to Mountain View's failure to moderate YouTube's content in a satisfactory way. PC Magazine comments on some forthcoming research by Intsights that explores the connections between Russia's cybercriminal gangs and the country's intelligence services. The gangs operate with the toleration of the security organs on the condition that they leave certain targets alone and from time to time accept certain taskings. The intelligence and security services themselves find the relationship useful. It would be a mistake, however, to view Russian intelligence and security activities as closely and monolithically coordinated. Kimberly Zentz, who directs threat intelligence for the German industry consortium DSCO, pointed out at Black Hat last week that in fact the organs are often mutually competing. She named the big three cybersecurity players as the Ministry of Interior, the MVD, the GRU, which is the military intelligence service responsible for Fancy Bear, and the FSB, the Foreign Intelligence Service, that's the principal heir to the Soviet-era KGB. One example she cited involved activities directed against U.S. political campaigns in 2016. Cozy Bear, the FSB, was in early and quietly. Fancy Bear came in noisily, in the American idiom, loaded for bear. And finally, to consider another case of intelligence services acting either like criminals or in concert with criminals, China's foreign ministry has reacted to FireEye's report last week on APT-41. You will recall that the researchers suggested that a number of state operators were moonlighting as crooks. China's foreign ministry dismissed FireEye's report on APT-41 as ill-intentioned fabrications. Besides, the spokesman adds, attribution is difficult and China opposes all forms of cybercrime, as is well known. It's also well known, the spokesman hinted darkly, who's behind most of the bad stuff in cyberspace. They don't say so exactly, but we can't escape the impression that they have someone stateside in mind. Fort Meade, they're looking at you, we guess. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. 
So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. And joining me once again is Joe Kerrigan. He's from the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute, also my co-host on the Hacking Humans podcast. Joe, great to have you back. Hi, Dave. Joe, I was thinking recently about okay. passwords, uh-huh. and I know you think a lot about passwords I yourself. Do. Here's my question. Yes. So we advocate that organizations use password managers. Yes. We And individuals use password managers. Yes, we do. So if I'm in an organization that has mandated that my employees use a password manager, mm-hmm. why am I allowing them to use their own passwords, to generate their own passwords? Is there any reason why my employees should be allowed to pick their own password rather than having a random string of characters generated for them and stored in that password manager? So you're asking if... Uh, if- if it's reasonable to set a policy that you will not be able to set your password, that we will pick one for you and you'll use that. Correct. I think that's 100% reasonable. I don't know if it's possible in the, in the enterprise password managers, but I imagine that it might be. Yeah. It, it's certainly a feature that if it's not there, should be there. It just strikes me that why even give people the option of reusing passwords I agree in, in the corporate environment? We still have, it seems like we've got this legacy notion that uh, you should be able to choose a password and make something easy to remember. And right. but what we know that's that's part of the problem. That's that why is, people reuse their passwords. That's exactly because, right. And if we have password managers, which takes away that problem, yeah, then we should enforce the proper use of the password managers through mm-hmm. policy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. I guess they still have to choose a password for the password manager. They Ugh, do. Darn it, they do. But you can you can also protect that password with uh, multi-factor authentication using right. a token or something. Right, 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 right. <laughs> All right, but so you know, my my line of thinking here is not uh, crazy or no, out of line or irrational. Line of or... Is exactly right. I think that in fact, if if I'm 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 not familiar with the enterprise level password managers because I've never had to use one. I use a personal password manager. Mm-hmm. If that's not a feature in them, it should be. Mm-hmm. It, that as as the uh, as the co- corporation as the CISO of this corporation, I can mandate in I can click a box that says don't let users pick their passwords, generate a unique password for every site that users use. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when a user says, "Well, I already have a password for this website," your response is, "It's time to change it." Mm-hmm. Yeah, why not? If, right. if it's a business related right application. Uh, yeah. You're going to put that in your password manager. We're going to spin up a new one for you. Right. And, and it's going to be strong. And you shouldn't be, uh, you know, this is just my personal opinion, but I don't think if I had an, uh, if I was working at a company where they had an enterprise password manager, I wouldn't be putting my personal passwords into the enterprise password manager. 
No, no. Right? I, I mean, I think in some ways this takes a burden off of the employee. Uh, agreed, 100%. Yeah. Uh, that's what I tell people. I, I always, when I'm giving talks about password hygiene, I always tell them the long, you know, litany of things they have to do. These passwords have to be long and complex right. and difficult, and you try not to remember them. I and you have to change them every so often. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've talked about changing passwords before. Yeah. And you have to have a different password for every site. And everybody just goes, oh. And, <laughs> and right. I say, but, you know, instead of trying to do all that, just use a password manager. Yeah. And, and it will make it so much easier. Once you start using a password manager, you will wonder how you lived without one before. No, I can vouch for that. Yep. It's absolutely true. All right. Well, something to think about. I'm sure if there's some flaw in my logic, our faithful listeners will let us know because they're very good at that. (laughs) (laughs) So perhaps there's something that neither of us are thinking about. And if that is the case, please do let us know. Uh, know. We want to know and we'll share that with everybody. But, uh, you know, something to ponder. So, yeah, we'll see. All right. Well, Joe Kerrigan, thanks for joining us. My pleasure, Dave. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for CyberWire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Tomorrow.